0: Thanks for listening to the Media People podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Making the jump to digital advertising can be challenging, especially if you're coming from the broadcast world. Moving to a new medium while pivoting careers can make it even more difficult. But today's guest, Cheryl Luciani, did just that. Cheryl's the director of digital ad sales at Star Metroland Media, but it was broadcast buying where she got her start, planning and negotiating multi-million dollar television campaigns for brands such as Johnson & Johnson and Coca-Cola. She pivoted not only into digital media, but also media sales when an opportunity to cross the aisle with Rogers Media presented itself. Cheryl Luciani sits down to chat with us about growing up in small-town Ontario, her time in college studying desktop publishing and advertising, moving from media buying to media sales and leading digital ad sales for one of Canada's largest news media companies.
1: Star Metroland Media is the coming together of Star and Metroland in a cleverly named Star Metroland Media. But basically my role there is to support digital revenue growth across our retail and national sales teams. Um, And the company is very different. Uh, I mean, it's different... Since I've joined, um, but certainly it's changed exceptionally in the last year. Uh, We have new owners, uh, Paul Rivette and Jordan Beethoven, and they've been spending and investing in our company like crazy. Um, From, you know, applying for a casino gaming license to launching parcel delivery to um, investing in a content studio and a dozen podcasts. Um, there's definitely a big shift, uh, in the, the feeling, uh, in our organization, the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and, uh, I don't know, I think of it more, of, uh, as a pivot to it's, it's news, but it's not just newspaper.
0: I want to go back to the beginning. You are a small town girl, but you've lived in many small towns. Where are you from originally?
1: When you say that, I, of course, play the song in my head, but, um, list will <laughs> Listowel, Mount Forest, uh, and Tulsenberg would be the, the, the big three from my childhood for sure.
0: Literally, you're describing cottage country to me. So a lot of Canadians <laughs> go there. For, literally, a lot of Canadians go there for their weekend home. But that was home, home for you. So like, what was life like growing up in? I mean, pick one of the towns, or just cottage country in general.
1: Well, Listowel. We lived across from a, a park, um, so a lot of my time was. Uh, spent at the ball diamond or at the tennis courts and uh, rallying the neighborhood kids for, you know, uh, exploring the local creek, uh, the Maitland River. Um, and uh, and then by the time we moved to Mount Forest and I was in grade six, uh, you know, that started uh, to evolve a little bit to include more, you know, bike riding and dance routines and... Um, uh, just, I, I would say we got to, we got to venture out a little further, but it's not dissimilar. They're only a half an hour apart. Um, and Tilsonburg, uh, I felt like I reached the big time. They had two malls in town. Uh, we all, we, we never had any malls or a McDonald's, uh, growing up in Listowel or Mount Forest. It was, uh, a, a major issue, um, while I was there. So, uh, Tilsonburg was, uh, exciting because you could go to the malls in high school and, Um, we could go to McDonald's, uh, late night and, um, it was a a little bit of a more elevated small town experience.
0: So you've already mentioned that the family moved around a little bit, but you said that you added it up once and you moved 20 times in 21 years. You've got to be traveling light. If that's the case.
1: I added it up when I was trying to come up with something interesting about my life. It was a question that came up when I was at media edge, when I first started and uh, I, I did the math then. Um, I did move that many times. Uh, some of them were just from house to house, uh, aunts to uncles uh, across town. But uh, I wasn't carrying a lot with me then. It was an air mattress and basically my clothes. Um, but I did officially move that many times, uh, all of my worldly possessions. So,
0: And growing up, you didn't just have hobbies. You had experiences. I mean, you said that your mom basically signed you up for everything can you just kind of give us like five or seven things that she signed you up for or or that you did growing up
1: so it's going to sound funny now but at the time my mom was very concerned that I was going to be backward shy that I was so shy growing up that she needed to expose me to as many things as possible so I mean I can give her credit potentially for um helping me overcome my shyness um but I had uh I tried almost everything from ballet to art classes, to dance class, baseball, bowling, skating, um, pretty much everything that was in that catalog. At some point, I would have to pick something to do for the the winter and the summer, which also included swim lessons. And I mostly, I would say, settled on gymnastics. That was the one that stuck through at least grade school.
0: Why did gymnastics stick?
1: I think that, uh, you know, I, I think I, I I felt like I was good at it. Um, I think that's probably the most likely reason. And uh, it was an individual sport, which I think probably uh, helped a lot um, with my shyness at the time.
0: I got to single out one thing you did, bowling. Please tell me um, what your experiences were like as a, I guess, a childhood bowler?
1: <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> a bowler? Childhood bowler. <laughs>
1: so youth bowling uh it was a thing i'm pretty sure the entire family got signed up at some point um that is probably one of the few things that i have uh always done on a first date the 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 bowling alley uh was the one sport that i would be competitive in so um, i remember getting a trophy i don't remember what it was for um but i did learn how to bowl quite successfully um enough that it's passable uh even into my adulthood to be able to hit a strike
0: i love how you called it first date material or like that <laughs> well because when you think of it when you think about it you prepay for bowling and if it's not going well you just say i'm going to the bathroom and you never come back and it's not like you left <laughs> anyone hanging with the bill
1: good call yeah except we have to wear those awful shoes that they they spray that uh disinfectant into I nobody looks to- hot in those bowling shoes
0: no that that that's definitely leaving your dignity at the door in the parking lot if you're willing to put those on. Why do you credit your grandparents as a major influence when growing up?
1: I feel like I'm one of the luckiest people. I can say I have four grandparents that are still in my life today, and I I would knock on wood if there was anything around, but I'm going to knock on my head. I have just been so grateful for their influence for you know, 40 years of my life and now uh, having their influence in my kids' life. My kids have four great grandparents um, to share, you know, their stories with and to get to know. And um, honestly, like I can feel myself getting choked up because I'm like, oh, it's been such a tr- tough year with, uh, with COVID and not being able to get that time and that you really count on. And I just, I love my grandparents a lot. What
0: was your first ever job?
1: This all comes full circle and I, I feel like I blocked it out for many years. I don't really, I didn't really recall it until you asked me the question. It was a paper route. I'm pretty sure that I would have been nine at the time, um, because we were still in Listowell, and I shared the route with uh, a neighbor and we would deliver the, uh, Saturday star, uh, with our bikes. In um, our wagon uh, and interesting that uh, fast forward this many years later uh, I'm back at the uh, at, back with my first employer
0: <laughs> now, now you're running the show there for digital ad sales
1: well I, I wouldn't call it running the show but uh, uh, certainly uh, working with lots of smart people on digital ad sales
0: when you were uh, when you were delivering the star I imagine it was a, a paid like it was a newspaper subscription so you had to go around and collect was that difficult for you that can be an intimidating thing. I delivered newspapers too, but it was a free newspaper. and I can't even imagine what it's like trying to go back and get people to pay for their subscriptions because that that was on you to do.
1: I don't really remember it creating any issues or challenges for me, um, but I don't know, how, how could you not pay a nine-year-old kid? <laughs> so I think that it was just uh, likely uh, without any uh, issues are static. I think that people were happy to pay for the product that they were receiving if I if I was to guess. But honestly, it was so long ago. I, I can't say that I, I really remember that part of the job. I remember the cold, wet mornings.
0: <laughs> did you have to put the papers together too, like the different sections with flyers, or did it come fully assembled to you?
1: Oh, geez. I, I don't know. I, I feel like it came fully assembled, but like, I, I don't know, Victor, I'm I'm too old to be answering questions from when <laughs> I was nine.
0: <laughs> maybe. OK, so maybe I'm traumatized from my paper route. Because, this is all very
1: visible
0: for you. <laughs> oh, God. I, I look, I, I I can't even imagine trying to collect on a subscription because I delivered a free paper. And I got to tell you, if like what would happen with the Mississauga News is they would list all of the flyers that could not should be in the newspaper because the flyers were localized. Like if there was yeah. a store that wasn't in that neighborhood, they weren't going to pay for the flyer to go there. And people would complain all the time and be like, I didn't get this flyer. And then sometimes my boss would be like, why didn't they get this flyer? And I'd have to be like, you didn't drop it off. Maybe it wasn't supposed to happen in their area. And I would just kind of dread and be like, thank God I don't have to go collect money from these people because they're going to withhold it if they don't get their Canadian tire flyer. Because that's the <laughs> like, hold. I'm not joking. People were holding on to.
1: People are really obsessed with flyers. I think that you're either a flyer person or you're not, but if you are looking for that weekly flyer, it's a really big deal when it doesn't arrive.
0: Oh god, yeah, especially if it's one that you absolutely want. Remember catalogs like the Sears catalog, Consumer's Distributing, remember that? Yeah, I do. Oh my god, that was like that was like our Amazon before there was Amazon.
1: Well, and I mean even, you know, this past year in particular with the kids home they love cutting stuff out. That you know, the the craft aspect of, of flyers and catalogs. Uh, they look forward to uh, cutting those pieces of paper out, gluing them, and then you know, doing hearts around them. And uh, um, it's it's a it's a project. If only we could get them to uh, businesses to just print on one side of the paper, that, <laughs> that would be the trick. Because they've had to be creative and cut holes in the back to to show both products. <laughs>
0: I think there's some sort of brand engagement research in what your kids are doing with the flyers. And I'm I'm like I'm half joking when I say that, but there's got to be an academic somewhere going, "Well, wait a minute. If they spent an hour playing with the Canadian Tire flyer, shouldn't we test if- their recall? Like what was on page 2? What was the price of the mower? Was it electric or gas?" Go. Absolutely. Just see if the kids remember.
1: Well, and uh time spent, I mean, think about the value oh, God, uh, yeah. and the influence. Well, take it back. Take it back to the team. After
0: graduating high school, what brought you to George Brown College? And why study desktop publishing? And before we go any further, George Brown College, you're relocating from basically cottage country Ontario to the big city. It's in Toronto. Did you have any sort of like, I guess, culture shock moving to the big city for the first time?
1: Oh, uh, well, I was commuting from Mount Forest for I think at least the first few months.
0: Really, um, George Brown College? How, yeah, how long I would was wake up.
1: It was a couple of hours, it was a two hour commute, Um, but I'd wake up at five in the morning to get there for that 8.30 class or whatever it was. Um, And and it wasn't too bad until I moved to to the city, but uh, the the difference between small town living, I didn't really experience until I moved um, a few times later in Toronto. In small towns you say good morning to people when you're on the sidewalk you you don't pass by people and not make eye contact and i remember um telling my uh, my mom at the time that one of the lessons i had to learn coming to the big city of toronto is you have to change the way that you walk and I, and and i would call it my bitch walk <laughs> you might need to edit that out um, but uh, it was, you know, eyes straight ahead, walk with purpose like you know where you're going. You make eye contact at people, but you don't say good morning. You don't you don't ask how people's day uh, has been when you're at the stoplight. Um, you carry on. Um, and that was something I had to figure out, uh, I think, a little bit uh, the hard way. But it did come back around later on after a few moves. There are pockets of the city that uh, are very friendly and that it feels like a small town in the city of Toronto.
0: So why study desktop publishing? Like what was the attraction there?
1: It was an easy, obvious thing for me to do next. I um, had always planned on going to university out of high school I realized just towards the end of high school that I wasn't ready to make that commitment. It felt so long term to go to university and I wasn't really sure what I was going to get out of it. I didn't know what job I was going to get following university. Um, And so I think maybe just being very practical um, and wanting to make sure that I continued to um, pursue post-secondary Uh, I ended up uh, picking desktop publishing mostly because I was working for my mother at the time. She had a a photo studio, uh, Main Street, Mount Forest. And at that studio, I was helping with uh, a little bit of photo restoration and brochures and business cards. It was something that I liked doing. It was, you know, fun work. Uh, So I thought that it was a good, easy opportunity to become more skilled in it skill that I could bring back to the store um, but hopefully not hopefully that led to a job outside of Mount Forest and 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 some you know additional opportunities uh, so that that was the plan just stay in school and make sure that when you come out of it and you've spent that money for tuition you know that you're gonna get a job
0: no I, I completely agree with you there I mean I think it has something to do with baby boomer parents like I've mm. talked to other people about this and it's weird because baby boomer parents were able to do so much for their families but it seemed like they did not have any sort of professional fulfillment or satisfaction so they're like you're gonna to go to university and you get a degree and it's like okay what next and they were like it will sort itself out and it's just like well that doesn't sound right <laughs>
1: yeah I, mean, I, think I, just, I think i was just i think it was just really now. practical at the time i think uh you know money was really tight uh and you know it was i think It was a lot of money to go to school and I was gonna take out a student loan and I wasn't gonna do that without knowing that I was gonna be able to pay it back.
0: So you indulged your creative side, we could say at George Brown College. And then after graduation, you re-enrolled at Georgian College, not to confuse them, in Barrie. And you studied (laughs) that. Seriously, when I was putting this together, I'm like, do not confuse Georgian and George Brown College. I thought for sure I'd get it backwards, but I didn't because I rehearsed this. But (laughs) I'm serious, but Georgian College, Why study advertising? Like what was the attraction? Because it's funny, because you were talking to me right now about, hey, I had to make sure whatever I studied was practical. And so it almost seemed like if you had to bet what your next move was, re-enrolling in another college program probably would have been at the bottom of the list. So what made you go back to school?
1: When I was taking the desktop publishing program I I had actually looked at advertising at the same time. I ended up going with desktop publishing. It was a lesser commitment than advertising, which is I think also why I went with it. Um, But while I was in that course, I realized that um, that I I was more creative than I thought. In my head, I I pictured, and I think like a lot of people do, what advertising is is coming up with a big idea and bouncing the tennis ball off the wall. Um, And I didn't think that that was me. Uh, But there were elements of advertising that I was drawn to. Uh, And so uh, when I kind of discovered in George Brown that I wasn't maybe completely analytical, that I'm a bit 50-50 right and left brain, I thought I'll I'll give it a shot. Um, And George in college, um, I really picked, and to be honest, I picked um, George Brown College initially because I knew nobody there and I really wanted to just go someplace where I knew no one. Uh, And so when I went to Georgian College, it was to go with a few of my friends from Tilsenburg, which created a bit more of uh, a college experience. But uh, it was it was funny because uh, as much as that was the reason, a lot of the reason why I chose that school, they only lasted about a month and they both dropped out.
0: (laughs) So You were there on your own after.
1: Yeah, I was there on my own after living in Oro Medante without a car uh, and uh, trying to coordinate new roommates that would be, uh, be agreeable to driving me in uh, back and forth to my college courses uh, every day. Uh, and I, thankfully, I found uh, three, three guys that uh, were so happy to be living in a beautiful cottage on the water Uh, that they agreed to to shuttle me and and chauffeur me back and forth.
0: (laughs) That's a pretty good deal. I mean, that's a a good selling point, cottage on the water. And correct me if I'm wrong, you mentioned this to me years ago when we were working together at Rogers. You still do some work with uh, with Georgian College. Like, aren't you, I guess, I don't want to say TAing, but marking or judging student work coming in as a professional in the classroom?
1: I really enjoyed being part of their uh, Georgian advisory committee. And I, I did it for many, many years, uh, and we would grade the year-end projects. They'd do their IMC presentations. Uh, it was, you know, uh, it was great to see the students and, you know, all the great work that they were doing that next round of, uh, of up-and-comers in our industry. And, and then ultimately, I ended up, uh, you know, creating opportunity to hire some of them uh, over the course of the years, um, which, was, which, was, which was great. It worked out really well. I, I I think that uh, you know, they're they're doing great work up there. I was happy to be a part of it for as long as I was and and uh and and happy to meet some great people along the way.
0: I usually ask people what their first media job is, but technically speaking, I guess your first one was I mean, selling or delivering the Toronto Star. I had, Corby <laughs> Fine, I had Corby Fine on in a previous episode and he was doing the same thing as well. And he's like, I guess that is my first media job, even though I've had other media jobs. So we'll put that one off to the side. Oh, Corby. What was your first media job after graduating from college?
1: An internship at Media Edge. Um, so Dave Crammond, uh, who I'm sure everybody knows, that, was the one to hire me but he was friends with uh, one of the um, teachers at our school uh, who was on the advisory committee as well. Um, And I just remember him saying that there wasn't an internship available at the new VR, but that there was an internship available at YNR in Toronto. And I was so excited, the idea of working at Young and Rubicam, and that was in my textbook. And I've made it to the big time. And going to the interview, I sat down in the lobby and I, and I look up and there's a big sign at the front of the uh, reception that says Media Edge. And I was so confused. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm like, what, what just happened? And that was uh, a lot of the discussion that I had with Dave. You know please tell me the media edge uh, you know what is it you guys do with this organization and what happened to young and Rubicam?
0: <laughs> was it just a quick name change back then because I know that the YNR name still lives on or was it one of yeah. like the subsections under YNR? like I I it's sometimes I can be a little spotty with holding companies in the different divisions
1: that was at the time when they uh they were starting to branch out media companies were becoming their own entities instead of being a spin-off of their creative departments um and david said that the sign only had gone up the week prior so <laughs> it was new for everyone
0: <laughs> i gotta tell you on a different note i missed the name media edge nothing against mec which did evolve into into wave M- merger but i missed media edge
1: it was media edge and then it was media edge cia and uh, yeah it's had many many names over the years i knew i could say media edge to you i knew you'd get the reference
0: <laughs> oh yeah i know media edge i miss those days you start at Media Edge. What does your role there entail? Like what are your early duties?
1: Oh, uh, it would have been uh veils calls, checking contracts. I'm trying to think it was uh, such a long time ago. Like as a as an intern, it was a lot of grunt work as as you would expect. So it was, you know, filing and organizing, and it was very heavy paper in those days
0: let me ask you this about that because i was having a conversation with another friend of mine in the industry agency side and she sits on one of uh, she sits on the board from one of the colleges um helping to shape their advertising program as well and i said to her i go i think the problem we have right now is that the programs do a great job of shaping the leaders of tomorrow like they do things like the can lions like or really the young lions they teach them to be leaders they pitch for people in the industry And they come out of college ready to go and they go, here we go. We're going to take on the world. And it's like, cool, file these make goods, go chase these invoices. And it's kind of like I feel like the the one thing in universities also guilty of this as well. is You train the leaders of tomorrow, but you don't tell them that your first job or what you do tomorrow isn't going to be that. You kind of have to work your way up. Did you find that you were a little jaded at the beginning going, hey, when do I get to participate in a brainstorm? Or if you had an idea floating around in your head for a client, you just wanted to burst into your boss's office and go, this is what we should do. Like anything like that happened?
1: Definitely not. I was just so grateful to have been given a shot, uh, to have had a Um, a cool job in advertising. There were so few people in my program that ended up landing internships in Toronto. And um, I was just so grateful for the opportunity. I I will say in going back to Georgian College for so many years, that was one of the things that I was, um, you know, uh, pretty loud about is, you know, managing expectations and understanding that everybody has to, to learn and um, and some of the learning is, is, is in doing some of this work that, you know, isn't necessarily what you set out to do, but it is a necessary stepping stone to get you to where you want to be. So, um, but I agree with you. Entitlement is for sure an issue um, for, a, for a lot of people uh, coming out of school.
0: One thing I noticed about you when we were working together, and I can say the same about myself as well, is that you and I both had our own methods, not just of selling, but like just our own organizational methods of keeping our stuff together. So like whether it be spreadsheets or presentations or anything, (laughs) anything like that. And I, upon reflection, I look at myself and go, "Okay, the reason I think and I'm not toot my own horn that I've got these processes in place and I'm organized in a certain way is because. I did the grunt work and I was paying attention and I found ways to make the grunt work a lot better. Would you say that that was kind of the same for you as well Is that your time interning and being coordinator set yourself up for a certain level of success later on in your career?
1: I think that I've always liked organizing things. I've always liked finding a better way. That's probably the, the easiest way to explain it. I, I always believe I've always believed that there's a faster, more efficient way of doing things. Even as an intern, i <laughs> there I could I could launch into a few stories for you right now, but even Go as an intern, it. there there was uh, you know a few occasions where you know you you just you're doing all that you can to be self-sufficient to add to the organization. And um, I remember I remember calling downstairs to the printing company uh, on the, I think it was the second floor or to get a printing quote for, um, this media evaluation I was doing as part of my internship. Uh, I didn't mention it to anybody, uh, until, uh, I got, uh, uh, I, 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 got a call from reception and the receptionist said that they were waiting in the lobby to do their presentation. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I went into, to Dave Crammon's office and said, I'm not sure what's happening right now, but I just want you to know that, uh, uh, this company is now officially pitching for a business <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and and i really i just needed it for the the line item to fill in that that column of the spreadsheet for um what our media evaluation was so yeah funny stuff like that ends up happening but i think it, it's it's all under the you know with the best of intentions to try to um be as as accurate as possible but also get get the information without having to be a burden to other people and to add value um so yeah i don't know that's a that's a memory i haven't thought of in a really long time
0: (laughs) oh we're gonna go even deeper so after you left media edge you went over to m2 universal tell us a little bit about what you did there and did you find the role or did the role find you
1: So what I love as we play back through my uh, history is that all of the names change of all of these organizations. Even when I started at M2 Universal uh, and my duration at that company, it was M2 Universal and then I was with UM and then I was with J3 and it was all uh, part of uh, the the same kind of ownership uh, group and team and uh, leadership. But yeah, when I started over there, uh, I believe the role found me. But I don't. It was so long ago. What I re- really remember is I remember Dennis Dinga. Um, I don't know. Did you work or come across Dennis as, as part of your career?
0: The name sounds familiar, but I can't say I've ever met him or spoken to him.
1: Okay, so Dennis Dingo was a character and a half, and uh, he was uh, such a fun guy. (laughs) I had a nickname for everyone, but uh, I do remember in my interview, and Karen Reith will back me up on this point, uh, he asked me how much I was making, and I didn't want to answer him because I knew that it wasn't going to help. He was, you know, going to underpay me as a result, and so I I took a risk. Uh, I read the room, and I just asked him how much he was making. I just looked at him and I go, "How much are you making?" <laughs> and, and and he kind of looked back at me a little bit surprised, and then I think thought that that was quite funny. And it, basically, I got the job. I, 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 maybe I exhibited uh, good negotiation skills. I'm not quite sure, but uh, I, I did end up making the money that I was I was hoping to make in, in, as part of the move.
0: And internally, you moved around a little bit. You've already alluded to that. You went to the sister agency, J3, where you were working on things like J&J and Coca-Cola. I mean, why the shift? What was the opportunity to say, move down the hall or move up a floor?
1: It was a promotion. It was a a promotion to supervisor. I was so excited. Um, Helen Brathwaite uh, worked down the hall for me and she would come by, you know, we'd be working late after hours and you know, she'd, she'd chit chat and I, I actually think that part of the reason she wanted me over there on her team is just for some late night company. We didn't work super late, but, uh, uh, you know, quite often we were the last two in the, in the hallway. Um, so I was uh, really grateful for, for the promotion and, and for her taking a chance on me. And, uh, um, and she was a, a great mentor and, and helped me a lot in my career.
0: What did you learn from the different types of clients you had the opportunities to work on? Because all of them bring their own sets of, I guess you could say, concerns, KPIs, things like that. Like no two clients are identical. So what did you learn, say, from working on pharma or CPG versus, say, I mean, Coca-Cola falls under CPG, but like they're kind of their own beast separate from J&J because it's like pharma CPG. You know what I'm saying? I'm doing a poor job of describing this.
1: I do know what you're saying. I'll be honest, I didn't find a lot of differences necessarily between the accounts as much as they all had their own nuances, their own demos, their own kind of rules. It was more about the people that were on those accounts and the clients that were on that business. It was more about learning dynamics necessarily uh, than necessarily executing on, on that buy. Um, each Each client... You know, uh, would have been at different spend levels, you would have had different commitments and, and different challenges. But uh, I think that's what I learned about broadcast is um, there's a lot of opportunity and just understanding what makes it consistent um, and to kind of uh, simplify that process. So much of it is just riddled in um, duplication of work and uh, a lot of repetitive work and and you know so it's really exciting when you see leaps forward from a technology standpoint for the industry and um just as i was leaving that's when the electronic spreadsheets were coming in into vogue so um <laughs> i haven't been on that side uh, in a while but uh hopefully it's a little bit uh faster and, and a little easier to execute
0: <laughs> so after your time at j3 you made what I would say is probably one of the biggest pivots of your career. You turned around, you left the agency world, you came to the dark side, you did media sales, but it wasn't broadcast sales, it was digital sales. Tell us how that came about. And I wanted to ask you, was, a bit of, was it a bit of a cold shower for you?
1: I knew that I needed a change. I felt like I had uh, I learned a lot in broadcast and I was still enjoying myself for the most part. Um, but I started to realize that I needed to expand my scope. I needed to create more opportunities for myself long-term. There was a lot of people, there still are, a lot of people that are in senior roles in broadcast and they're not going anywhere anytime soon. So it's, it's uh, you know, there's a very uh, small cohort of people that are at the top of the food chain from a broadcast standpoint. Um, and, you know, looking down the hall the world of digital, Um, Just, it seemed like a ton of opportunity, a lot of organizations um, staffing for it. And, and I, and I started, it was right at the time where we started to have the, the shift into a video strategy and in, even within the organization uh, you know, the digital team and the broadcast team and how that was going to come together in the, in the future was something I was giving a lot of thought to at the time. Um, So I was worried if I raised my hand and said, I want to learn digital when I was agency side that I would have to do it in addition to my current responsibilities. They weren't going to say, well, you can do a little bit less of broadcast and pick up a little bit of digital. I was going to be just working late and trying to figure that out on the side. Um, so I thought, you know what, I, I don't think of myself as a salesperson. I, I would, you and I talked about this already, but uh as much as I am in sales, I, I rationalize it in a different way. Um, and uh, in, in making that leap over, I thought, you know what, I'm willing to do sales if it means I can learn digital. I think that's you know, a, a, a good way to propel my career forward and to, to learn, um, have an influx of new. Um, and then I was really just lucky. Um, Diana Flumian, who uh, I'm, I'm assuming, did she hire you as well, Victor?
0: No, uh, I was hired by Mary Lepage. So I Ah. I think she she had just moved on as I started at Rogers. Like, I think I missed her by a couple of months.
1: Got it. So Deanna um, uh, had called on me when I was an assistant buyer uh, on the Ford Mazda business at uh, Media Edge. Uh, And it's just, uh, I think, a a good lesson for anybody that hasn't learned it. Be nice to everybody, especially your sales reps, Um, because Deanna, at the end of it, uh, ended up hiring me to be a a digital rep. She knew I had no digital experience. She knew me as a television buyer um, and really took a chance on me, um, which I'll always be grateful for.
0: When I worked with you, I learned something interesting about sales that I still use today. Do you want to know what it is?
1: Oh yeah, I'm dying to
0: know. Because one thing I used to notice about you too is like you are a fantastic closer. But I looked at the volume of what you were putting out, and I'm just like, there aren't enough hours in the days to do all this. And I remember you sat me down once, and you're just like, I just put it in an email, and I was like, really, no big fancy deck. And you showed me how if you if you drop enough knowledge about your own products to the agencies you don't have to talk about that anymore. You can get past the kind of, I guess, first date with them about here's all the wonderful websites we have in our audiences, and you can drill down on specific solutions. And if you do that enough with them, then you can put your ideas into a simple email. And I'm not saying that there's there's not a, a convincing format, but it's not like you need a huge deck or a PDF for that. All you need is that really convincing, straightforward email, and then they can imagine how that would play out in one of our properties or one of the websites that you have there. So that's something I definitely took away from you and I still use that to this day.
1: I've always said this. I've, I don't like being called a salesperson as much as I definitely am a salesperson. I get that. Um, I think of myself as a matchmaker. I, I picture like a wall of products behind me and I'm grabbing a little bit off of a bunch of shelves in order to meet uh, you know, the challenges that are put in front of me. Like I don't think of it as sales as much as I think of it as, you know, how do I solve a problem? Which, you know, I, I get is is a very obvious statement with you know everybody talking about solution selling, but I felt like that was so integral to my beginnings in sales, um, and how and, and to my approach. And to your point around you know, what you put in an email, what you write in a deck, I, I, I do think of it as we have an obligation to educate our clients about what we have as, as uh, you know, what, what brands, what products, what opportunities, but you're not really selling them that. What you're selling them is the, you know, what, what solution it is or what idea it is that you have and, and how you're bringing it to life is always kind of a bit of a, a spider web with whatever that solve is at the center and all of the ideas um, coming from it. Um, And I would say that has been consistent, whether I was at Rogers or even now at Torstar, let's let's make sure that you can distill your idea down uh, because putting a whole bunch of slides in a deck to explain your product still isn't selling an idea.
0: I completely agree with you. And I like the fact that you're using the term solution because when I left TV years ago and went to digital, I kind of had to reboot the way i thought and think like a solutions oriented person not to diminish broadcast at all but i mean you were on the other side you know exactly what it what it's like if and i'm oversimplifying it but if someone puts together a plan for you on the like a tv rep puts together a plan for you and they say hey you know what you wanted to buy six grps here's what the split is between uh prime and fringe here you go and it posts at like a seven They look like a hero and then they're likely to come back to you. We don't really have that in digital. You can actually over deliver, I guess, financially and give them a little bit more value and still kind of fall flat on your face if whatever they're tracking on the back end doesn't equate out to what they think it was supposed to be.
1: If you haven't asked questions before you made that sale, then you failed.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. You're doing it by the seat of your pants. Absolutely. I completely agree. You are going to fall flat on your face.
1: Well, yeah, if you haven't asked the question what you're being measured on, and you haven't asked somebody to explain to you what it is they're trying to accomplish, somebody else will. <laughs> so uh, like if you don't have a plan for how this is going to be a success and renewed and something that builds, then it's it's sort of uh, I don't want to say a waste of, of a conversation, but you know it's it's you're not making everything out of it that it should be. Um, and, and it shouldn't be a one and done conversation. It should be the beginning of a lifelong relationship partnership until, um, something, something better comes along and you hope that day never comes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a good way of putting it. So what, what were you able to leverage and you, or utilize from your agency days that helped you find success in sales?
1: Well, you get exposed to every different type of sales personality and you quickly realize uh, what sales styles you appreciate or gravitate to and which ones you don't. I, I spend a lot of time honestly thinking and observing the people that I was interacting with and, uh, and, and how they approached business and how they, um, how they got my attention, um, which ones I would respond to, which ones I wouldn't. Um, and I tried to apply that to to my approach. There's, yeah, there's. I, I was fortunate to work with a lot of really great sales reps in in broadcast. Like you got kind of the best of the best. These, you know, it's a very um, lucrative career. And I was actually one of one of the reps on my business. I ended up working with at Rogers. And interesting to kind of uh, be able to compare notes on both sides of of the equation. But I, I do. Wholeheartedly believe that when your agency side, um, as much as I said to my in, in my interview with Deanna Flumian, um, you know, you're selling when your agency side as much as you're selling when your sales side. Um, you know, your your job is to convince people uh, that you've put in the thought and that your idea is sound and that it's going to deliver on their goals and. Uh, you know, you're, you're finding the right people to communicate that to in an agency and you're doing the same from a sales standpoint, you're just talking to different people. What about
0: when it comes to putting together, say a pitch or even a presentation for the most part, it was a conversation I had with an old boss years ago who had spent pretty much his entire life agency side, whereas I had always spent my life supplier side. And I said to him, I go, look, I've maybe delivered, I've probably done thousands of presentations." but I've only really delivered, I'd say, 30 to 40 different decks throughout my career. You, on the other hand, have been exposed to thousands of different presentations. You've got to know what works way better than what I do. So I would lean on him for a little bit of input there. Did you find that when you came into the sales or solution side of the business, you were looking at presentations going, nope, that slide's not going to work. Nope, you got to change that. I can already see that getting cut out of the deck as well. Like, did you find that those kind of like, I guess you could sort of say those kind of granular skills that get overlooked quite a bit, I guess, on our side of the business now? Did you find them coming to the surface going, no, this is how we can make it more appealing to our partners on the other side?
1: Definitely. Uh, I would say I probably get a little too in the weeds because of uh, potentially my background (laughs) in desktop publishing, Um, if I'm to be brutally honest. But um, I I would say that, you know, the running joke agency side was that everybody was number one. Uh, So a lot of the training was to understand what wasn't being told to you. I would say that I've applied that to the sales side of things, because I think when you understand that your job is to show what makes you different, what makes you unique and where you are, number one, it reframes, I think, a bit of that discussion and and your approach um, when you're talking to clients.
0: So at Rogers, you started off as a rep to move it up to sales manager and now you're at Star Metroland media so let's start off with uh the first part how did you find the role or did the role find you
1: uh headhunter reached out and uh i like i wasn't actively looking from from rogers i'll be honest they they hooked me with a couple of things uh one being uh there was a typo actually in the in the job posting saying that it was work from home it's like oh interesting
0: Oh, damn. <laughs> I, la-
1: I later found out that wasn't actually the case and that is part of the reason i took the call from the recruiter um and uh, you know ultimately it was a promotion at the time so uh yeah but i was wooed as part of the interview process the the man that hired me steve shroud um as now a, a career coach uh he's he, I realized through the process, I'm like, this guy's going to be good for me. He's uh, just really structured and organized. And I'm like, I, I, you, you kind of leave for bosses, right? You want to pick a good one. And and so I was really swayed by, by Steve and taking the role. That and the fact that some of our old, uh, former uh, Rogers peeps were over at Touristar. So I uh, love uh, Perry Bell and have the utmost respect for Perry Bell. Um, so when I found out that he was there, I was so excited. And and then I learned that John Boyton was over there, and I didn't know John from from my Rogers days, but uh, his reputation, of course. Um, so I was you know pretty excited to um, to get the job offer and to be able to make the move. As, as scary as it was, because it uh, you know you you really do become so uh, deeply entrenched in organizations uh, that, you know, the people become such a, a big part of your daily life. And, uh, it feels almost like a breakup when you leave jobs. Uh, it's hard to keep in touch with everybody and, and you miss hearing about how people's weekends were and, and what's going on in their lives. So for that part of it was, it was, it was hard to leave, but, uh, um, so far so good at Star Metroland and I've been enjoying the ride.
0: Cheryl, this has been a fantastic chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions?
1: I'm terrified. Hit me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm going to ask you to pick your favorite child. The campaign you were most proud of.
1: Catalane. And I I feel like I, I I have to be the most proud of it because it was the first one and it ended up becoming a sale. Uh, Yeah. But it ended up becoming a lot more than that with Nestle Purina. Um, It spawned a bunch of uh, really big programs. And I also got to meet one of my uh, now dear friends. Uh, So for that, I'm also, I would say it's The one I'm most
0: proud of. I remember that. I was sitting like one cubicle over from you when that happened because the big thing that stuck out to all of us was you got them to rebrand the Chatelaine site. The actual website was Catelaine. Like you loaded it up, no microsite. There it was on the homepage for everyone to see for uh, how many days was that rebrand in place for? It was a certain amount of time, but it was definitely there. I remember you couldn't avoid it at the beginning of the campaign
1: yeah it was uh we did it through takeovers uh through ad media um there was lots of solutioning that went into it um and initially the concept as a lot of these are they they evolve as by the time it gets purchased but it started out with the insight that uh cat owners uh their their animals and so we we took that as the insight to apply to catalane could we make all of the verticals of chatelaine apply to cats so the living section, the fashion section, um, you know, the travel section, and, and uh, all of all of the the pieces to it. And by the time it ended up getting executed, it was sort of a pared back version of that. But that was the insight. Um, and people were then putting their cover, uh, their cats on the cover of Catalane, which was uh, really, really uh, earth shattering, groundbreaking at the time, and and quite funny to look back at retrospect.
0: Your favorite movie
1: labyrinth um, i haven't seen it in a long long time but that was my favorite movie for many many years and i remember bringing it to my um, grade school uh, and everybody watched it in the library i would have been in like maybe grade four and laughing hysterically at the moment before it even happened, when the character uh, was was urinating in the fountain, and that that was so funny when you know when you're nine. <laughs> um, but I would I would say that like every rom com, you know, goofy, uh, you know, show I'm I've probably watched too many times. It's embarrassing to admit. Um, and How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days I've probably watched more than any of of those rom-coms oh my god i just told everybody that didn't i (laughs) you did that's in there
0: (laughs) your favorite video game
1: favorite video game okay so i haven't played a video game in probably 20 years um but i do remember buying csi for my boyfriend at the time for a Christmas present, and he went home to visit his family. And then I proceeded to stay up for, I think it was three days consecutively um, so that I could play and beat that video game. So yeah, the addiction is real. And uh, yeah, and now I would say from it's, it's mostly centered around my kids. Uh, they love Minecraft. Everything is around how they can earn time in Minecraft as I try to ration it. In 20 minute intervals and creative only. <laughs>
0: so, this is what, n- what never survival. Kill, this is what happens when you kill Saturday morning cartoons. The kids go elsewhere. <laughs> if Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you?
1: Gwyneth Paltrow.
0: Really? Why so, Gwyneth?
1: I say that with a little bit of embarrassment. I used to get told in high school that uh, that was my you know, celebrity likeness, um, and every every time that it's happened since then, which is very rare, um, I uh, am always appreciative, because uh, uh, not a bad thing to look like uh, somebody that looks as good as Gwyneth Paltrow, so I'll, I'll take it. It's a compliment. We're not going to talk about the candle. <laughs> I
0: wasn't going to bring up goop at all. <laughs> All right. Uh, A follow-up question to that. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, what would it be called?
1: It would be called Boring. Um, Honestly, I can't even imagine how they could make a movie about my life. There's just, there's not enough in there. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Your favorite book?
1: The ones that are turned into movies.
0: Uh, So I, I, that could be anything from like Jurassic (laughs) Park to Twilight (laughs) to Harry Potter. (laughs)
1: I'll take it. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to get back into book reading. I have to say that uh, I, I think when I started my career and I was in broadcast, I took it so seriously. I really focused all of my time on watching television shows and making sure I had time shifted and PVR'd and had everything loaded up and was as knowledgeable as possible. And book reading really fell off. And uh, so I'm trying to bring it back. But unless it's a movie, I don't know if I read it.
0: Your favorite song?
1: Favorite song. Depends on the situation. I would say Marvin Gaye, Gotta Give It Up, is one of my go-to songs. Uh, we certainly haven't been hosting lately, but uh, that's that's sort of the song that gets turned on at the end of the dinner party. Get everybody up dancing, um, sometimes on coffee tables. So we'll, we'll leave that for another chat. <laughs>
0: okay, Part two of this. Part two. The best advice you have ever received.
1: This too shall pass.
0: That is good advice.
1: I just like, I feel like it just needs to hang there for a second. This too shall pass.
0: If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? Slow down. Any particular reason why you uh, think your younger self needs to slow down?
1: I I said it and then I took a really deep breath like I was going to slow down just now. I I don't know. I think that uh, work hard, play hard has always been a mantra of mine and Uh, you know, if I look back, was all of that really necessary, (laughs) slow down, it's all going to be waiting for you, uh, 20 years from now.
0: (laughs) My signature closing question. If you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why?
1: I think I'd be running a small business. I've always worked for big companies. Um, my family is pretty entrepreneurial. Uh, my mom had a small business. My grandparents had a fruit market. Um, so I don't know. I've always imagined that at some point in my career, I will exercise those muscles and 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 do the same. But um, in the meantime, I just keep working for big corporations and run my business like it's a small business within. So best of both worlds, maybe.
0: Cheryl, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Victor. This was fun.
0: That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.